0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Today's session, um, I'd like to encourage everybody, if you can make it, um, tomorrow night, um, mon- uh, Friday, May 24th from 7. 7- P.m. to 9 p.m. He come down to the University of Lethbridge. Um, Julie's going to be doing a presentation um, titled The Blanket Exercise. It's a public presentation, um, a teaching tool by Kairos to raise awareness and understanding of the nation-to-nation relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada. And uh, next week on Thursday, May 30th, for our lunchtime meeting, Dan Johnson will be here presenting: Is it finally time to quit debating evolution? These sessions and all of our upcoming sessions are listed on our website at www.sacpa.ca, as well as today's session and all of our past sessions um, can be heard in audio on the website. Um, SACPA is interested in your opinions and thoughts. Um, On our website, uh, there's session surveys and a comment blog. We encourage you to comment on and keep the discussion going for today's session, as well as a suggestion box that's outside the front door. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, complaints, um, we encourage you to uh, please let us know. So today's session, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Why Does It Matter to Us, uh, once again is being presented by Julie Graham and Mike Frank. I'd like to invite them both um, to come back to the podium, and I'd also like to invite you, the audience, to um, pose questions to uh, these two speakers. Uh, You could either ask um, both of them a question or direct your question to one or the other. Um, Just probably let them know and, and they'll help you out. And uh, we'll entertain questions until about 1.30. Thanks a lot.
2: Is this what what they call the hot seat? The Alberta-style hot seat?
1: Oh, you were.
3: No, one for you. And oh, one for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay.
4: yeah. Just don't wave it around. <laughs> Stop telling me what to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, to stick can I take this off? Mm-hmm. I can take this off. Um, <laughs> I'm really
4: sure. Yeah.
2: Okay. I'm scared.
3: Hello, my name is uh, Knut Pedersen. I would be interested in knowing, uh, with these hearings and uh, the money being uh, made available to victims, how do how do the commission arrive at some figures that may be or may not be adequate? To help people out, is any uh, formula being used that you could explain? Yeah. 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 Thanks.
0: So the question was: Is in regards to the residential school program, when compensation is given to those victims, the process is that they they usually retain a lawyer. uh, These two lawyers meet one from Justice Canada. One representing um, the residential school program itself, a moderator, and then the survivor. So they do this onerous form, which is twenty pages long, and it says list list the harms that took place. So, for example, if you were slapped in your left ear and you lost a hearing loss, well, that's an E E one hearing, and that's entitled to three thousand five hundred dollars. So, and if you were treated to harm badly by uh, a nurse that's uh, N1. So there's this very specific calculator that they use. And it's a point system. So therefore as you tell the victim tells their stories, has their hearing, the two lawyers work it out and then a dollar figure is known that day. So the dollar figures range from $10,000 just you know lower stuff that people were treated badly. And up to the highest one I've seen was $350,000. So, you know, the higher end ones are repeated sexual torture by priests, by nuns, by staff for a decade. So when you see that for a six or seven year old, like you think, oh, well, that was a lot of money. You know, they're homeless. So it's a, when you see a lot of the homeless people walking around downtown Athridge, they're the ones who were treated horribly. So that's, that's a really graphic example. But.
2: Then in, there's also the common experience payment, correct, that was uh, given to all survivors. So what you're describing is the uh, independent assessment process. Yeah. So those are the two kind of broad <clears throat> broad categories. But out of that, as I was mentioning, out of that kind of basket of the settlement agreement, the survivors chose to set money aside for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. So the TRC does not, this is the IEP is a separate process from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's various parts to the settlement agreement, and those are two independent but related parts. And I had understood the latest figures for IEP. This is from the United Church. That's my tradition. Kairos is not involved in this kind of discussion because we're not parties to the settlement agreement Um, they were expecting at most 20,000 people would qualify under the kind of process that Mike just described. And the latest numbers are 57,000. And the significant part of that, I think, is that it really gives lie to the notion that what we would call criminal abuse was uncommon, the result of a few bad apples. It's emerging that it was systemic.
0: And... For, for example, maybe I'll just add to like One story was uh, I dealt with some of the people who had gotten to this, did their hearing, they get their check, and one lady just says, Mike, we're going to the bank and we're going to cash this. My grandchildren need this. I don't want it. Okay. Another individual said, Mike, come outside with me outside the Lethbridge Lodge. I got this check for $225,000.85 and we're going to burn it. They so burned it right there. No good will come from this so there 's many stories of what they had done through this, and a lot of people have just said i, I don 't the harm was me was I, I let my children go through a lifetime of this it 's if I can give them this in some type of method where they take their kids to Disneyland, pay their cell phone bill, whatever that 's the culture that couldn 't be destroyed right that we 're going to give so that was a very important fact we 're seeing.
3: Uh, Terry Shillington, thank you for your presentations. I appreciate uh, it opened up all kinds of uh, grounds for wondering about a bunch of things. My question is twofold, but it's basically uh, how successful is the process uh, becoming as we're, I, I don't know, we're halfway through or <clears throat> whatever it is. But uh, So the twofold question is, uh, to what extent are are, are uh, Aboriginal survivors that generation? To what extent are they engaging in the process, them and their, and their children? Uh, what would be the percentage of involvement from the First Nation side? And the, uh, the same question, uh, essentially around the what you call the settler culture. So, how do not many people will actually go to a hearing in Edmonton? How do you what's the how do you envisage engaging? uh me and my neighbors in um, in uh, the content of this, will uh, there be a printed report or video coverage or so two full questions sure. Sure.
2: Well that was that was a good extensive question there Harry. Uh, I'm going to work backwards from it. There will be a final report. there's already been an interim report. the final report is going to be released in June 2014. Um, and I think those recommendations will be extremely important to listen to because you're asking about engagement. Already the interim recommendations have some very specific things that we could all be about. So, for example, just one very small example we are discussing at our table, it's not teaching about this chapter in our country's history is not part of the curriculum in this province. It isn't in my home province of BC, my adopted province of Ontario. Very few have done it so that 's a concrete thing we can all be working towards with with the school system and uh, with with the youth in our lives so there 's many ways to engage and specific to the hearings, yes of, of, of course you know we 're a country of thirty three million not, not everyone 's going to get out to the hearings um, and in Saskatoon, it was about half aboriginal, half indigenous and and half non and that was a breakthrough because prior to that. And since, in fact, it's mostly been been a higher proportion of Indigenous people over non-Indigenous. So there's a problem with my people coming out to hear. And that despite the fact that there's actually an excellent live stream that I would really recommend to people, uh, where you can just sit at your computer and do this in a group or individually and listen to the testimonies. So there's actually, because of that service, there's actually no excuse for not listening to a testimony at some point. Right, Virtually everyone can do it. But obviously, the hearings alone aren't going to solve any of this. That was never the intent. I guess the way I see it is it's a step towards breaking a generations long silence, and it's a step towards those of us who are non Indigenous to taking responsibility for this and understanding the impact of it. So, that probably doesn't answer all your questions, but uh, maybe it's a start. Did you want to say anything to
4: that, Mike? No. Hi. My mom went through this, and um, it always bewildered me why um, the words like rape and murder weren't used in this um, process, because that's really what happened, you know, for... And it wasn't being raped as a 15- or 16-year-old. These were little, little, little children, you know. And... um, you know, to see that. And then some of the things you said, you know, like somebody getting $325,000. Um, even in some of the stories I've been told, you know, through my clients that have gone through this and got the settlements, um, it seemed like even the process was really flawed because hearing my mom's story, and I didn't even hear the worst of what she had to had to go through, and um, putting a value on it like that, you know, um, and saying that the people downtown were the worst abused. Um, I don't know if that's totally true, because I think there's a generation of older people that don't use those words like rape, I was raped, or um, I seen somebody um, murdered, or anything like that, you know. um, My mom's generation, you know, they didn't even want to talk about it. So, you know, her compensation... um, I don't think there was a process for her to really say what happened. With her lawyer, she told her story once. she never seen the lawyer again, except in the um, <laughs> the newspaper on, and on TV, because he was being um, pulled up, um, blot. And so he never did come back to her and say, well, tell me more about this. Did you remember anything like this? You know, those lawyers were not there for the people. And it makes me wonder... Um, this whole process and the people that have been hired, I, I wonder if they've made more money on this process than the actual victims. And none of the people that committed these crimes will ever see a day in jail. You know, they will never be convicted for the crimes they put onto these kids, and it's really, really sad.
0: Well. One thing I'll help here is I was the uh, RHSW worker for the program, for the IEP program for Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. And so I have a strong um, friendship and family with my, with my crew downtown. So these were the ones that just couldn't adapt, right? Not, not by their choice. or they, It's just when you've been put through this torture chamber, it, it didn't work out well and so I have a strong affinity to them and I don't mean to offend any of our other families that have been through this because the idea was to to try to measure uh, for example a sexual harm with a room full of lawyers and disclose this was one of the worst things this program has ever done it was designed by lawyers one clause was that historical crimes were absolved and no further prosecutions would be done if the person chose to enter into the agreement so a blanket okay because of the amnesty that has taken place, how do you have a relationship with someone that way? That That's really what's going on. And then bef- as for the process itself, it didn't work. There was a lawyer by the name of David Blott who worked out of Cartston and all throughout southern Alberta. And he did a big scam on the same residential school survivors. The process is you do an application, you bring it to your lawyer, and then they run with it. Well, David Blott had boxes in his office just of unfilled applications. And so he had form fillers do it. But he would take the money for it and never hear from these people again. So currently the Blood Tribe has a $50 million class action lawsuit against Mr. Blott. And he's not the only one. There's four lawyers in southern Alberta that were part of that there's two in bc and so your abuse of the process here so let's so finally the lawyers had a a standard to adhere to and even that wasn't done so it's not the process itself that was working for the victim it was the people entrusted to carry out the process that was further harming the same people and my closing comment was until you've been to the schools right, the St. Mary's and the schools that you've been, and you see where the little boys' underwears were that had been banging on the doors and the blood that was there and the abuses of what the nuns did to our women and how the priests were treating the men and the food that they ate that was pea soup, which nobody could eat anymore, and the wine that they drank and the fresh fruit that the kids could see but couldn't eat, you know. It's full of atrocities.
5: Uh, First of all, I wanted to say thank you to the work that you're doing to help with uh, the healing and and also the learning. And uh, today I I learned with our oldest son that he had one of the blanket um, experiences at his school as part of their um, understanding of globalization or effects of globalization. And with our other son, who's been able to attend about uh, four of the SACPA topics on this, to say thank you to SACPA, seeing his understanding is far beyond what mine ever was to do with the Constitution and the Indian Act and how that plays out with real people. Thank you. My uh, question is, I had heard that there was a difference in the residential schools, whether it was from Protestant or from Catholic-run and that uh, potentially it was because the Protestant were more family-orientated and family-based, where the children of, of the people running it actually maybe attended the schools, whereas the Catholic were run by um, priests and nuns who didn't have that same common
2: cultural experience. So I was interested in your feedback. You take one? Sure. Sure. I, was, uh, I was just at the Quebec national event in Montreal and uh, this topic is very new to many church members there. Kairos has a Francophone partnership with about 40 groups there, and one of the Jesuit priests said to me in in all sincerity, well, but the Catholic schools were better than the Protestant ones. (laughs) So um, I'm Protestant um, myself. I, I have never seen any evidence to suggest they were anything other than all pretty uniformly bad and that the ones were the wor- who were the worst, and I'm thinking of the Port Alberni School for the United Church and uh, Pelican Narrows for the Anglicans, it was where you had especially abusive staff or priests who were just allowed to run rampant. And a couple of them at least did get sent to jail, but I agree with the sister that most of them have just uh, gotten away with it scot-free. So I, I, I think it was very much uh, a system of abuse right from its conception to the day the last school closed. And you might have had some better superintendents or supervisors in that context, and I think that did show up at some of the schools, but the whole system was just completely ripe for abuse um, and was there very much to set out on a policy of assimilation, forced assimilation, in in which both the government and the church is shared. So that's just my experience. I, I can't see a way to cut any of them any much slack, I have to say, as a church member.
0: And adding to that, that at the time of the peak, when children in residential school, all Aboriginal children in Canada, 73% of them were in residential school, and that was a figure they boasted of, saying, Ha, we finally got them. Okay. To carry that out, the Indian agent worked with the nuns and the priests, and these were tyrants. You don't send your best people out to the plains of Alberta, they stay in Ottawa. You send your rejects, your drunks, your pedophiles your tyrants out there just to get rid of them to punish them so that's what it was and that's not just the indian side that's what some of the priests and nuns told me like my head sometimes is so full of dark material it's hard to deal with so uh, it's not to minimize anything but the difference in family values the, the issue was they completely ignored how aboriginal children were raised mm. that's the issue My name is Ryan Duick. I wanted to thank you both again, like others, for your presentation tonight. Uh, I also was in Montreal at the, at the TRC that you referred to, and I would, oh, really? I would encourage anybody who can make it to Edmonton to make the effort. It's not that far. It's five hours. Um, it's, it's March, which isn't great, but um, uh, it, for me, the most valuable part of that experience was not... I mean, the presentations are very moving, and it's gut-wrenching stuff, but... Um, the most valuable part was actually having conversations with people in between the sessions. Aboriginal people that you can actually, like you said, create a space for dialogue. And I think that's hugely valuable and necessary. And so I would encourage anybody that wants to or can make it to go to Edmonton or Vancouver. Um, and a question we were talking about at our table. Maybe the two of you can add some insight. Why isn't there a hearing south of Red Deer for, um, for the, for the, the, um, to share stories? Just a question.
2: Okay. I'd understood it was the, the funding cuts that the TRC had to implement in March, but yeah, maybe you got some insight there. I don't. Like
0: okay, it. you know, my hu- my <laughs> wife is looking at me like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> all Over right, there? but here you go. Right when the Creator programs you a certain way, well, the reason why those things aren't happening south of Calgary is because it gets into some internal Indian politics there's one of the chairs named Wilton Littlechild who's a lawyer. He's from Hobima. A lot of events happen around Red Deer, Hobima area. Calgary and everything south in Treaty 7 is ignored, where Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 get a lot of the attention. So basically, we don't have enough of a voice. So there's many aspects of, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of lawyers involved. So (laughs) that's the best I'll say that. And I know these things are recorded, so Wilton, <laughs> when you listen to this, that's what the truth is. Okay.
1: My name is Bob Byers. There was an editorial in this morning's group mail, and they mentioned that the government <coughs> has spent about $3 million on lawyers trying to prevent the release of archival information. Would you comment on that?
3: I do not know about that.
1: I didn't know about that.
2: Well, there's an expression in Brazil that says, uh, "Excuse me, here, same crap, different flies." <laughs> I uh, this is touching one of my hot buttons, I think, because one of the examples I had wanted to to, to mention and and uh, didn't have time. Fair enough. I obey crystal. Um, is is that today uh, any? Uh, Aboriginal child who's going to school on reserve gets $2,000 less per year, per student, than the students at my 12-year-old nephew's school in Surrey, B.C., because those kids are Indigenous. And the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society took the federal government to the Human Rights Tribunal over that. So that's a quasi-legal process. And the Human Rights Tribunal confirmed that, yes, indeed, this is systemic, deliberate, inequitable funding on a racial basis. So the government promptly mobilized its lawyers and appealed it. It's it's what they do to everything when they're caught out. It's it's a seriously broken part of our society. Instead of owning up and dealing with things, we tie things up in the legal system for years and years and years while we continue to cry poverty, even though we always have money for a legal process, it seems, and while land theft continues. That That's my... View of it, I think it's fair to say, it's Kairos' view of it. We support what what uh, First Nation Child and Family Caring Society is doing about that situation, and the document collection is just another example of, of that. And perhaps it's something you could uh, you could put your MPs on the spot about, perhaps.
0: Oh, it's it's a disgrace because. Um, s- I'm also a member of the Child and Family Services Board. 73% of, abor- of children in care are Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. So, And then on the education side, uh, I, on my teaching background was that the children who go to school on reserve have a 58% uh, chance of failing, whereas in Lethbridge, I believe it was around 8 to 9% in my last discussion with Marianne Murphy. So why is that allowed to take place with less funding? So it's just we won't get into that rant, but I want to hear from yeah. um, <clears throat> you.
6: I have a, just a question and then a comment. My first question, um, a lot of the survivors talk about the children going to residential school and there being scientific studies on them, taking blood samples, taking different types of samples. Have you, has a TRC? um are they going to expose that, or is, has that become an issue?
0: It is. Uh-huh. When tests, for example, uh, certain immunization were, were treated on children. And the first places were taken place in Sarsi, uh, the Sarsi school, because they had a, a TB outbreak where 80% of the children died. So therefore, they received these inoculations. So that's well documented, and that's a really good... Discussion point. There's more. That's very little is known out there until you sit in the stories.
6: Is there other types of studies, though, that has been identified?
0: Yes. I know of them but because it's through my work, but the general public would not know about them.
6: Okay. So that'll come in the final report, right? I hope so
0: because there's, yeah. yeah.
6: You could hope, but yeah.
0: But I don't think it'll come up.
6: Okay. And then I just kind of wanted to respond to the gentleman's question, too. A couple... Couple days ago, in the BC government, um, there's some. Oh, sorry. There's some um, some family members of some of the Picton victims that were um, suing the government mm-hmm. uh, for wrongdoing as far as dealing with um, Picton's investigation, and the government has suppressed that. Though all those all those um, sisters in spirit efforts, all the efforts that were made to to do an investigation and an inquiry into those until a lot of the cases in BC have been shut down because of those cases so and then with the um, child child and family and caring society, society um, they're suppressing those th- some of those that information as well so and then when you see it with the TRC it's the Harper government that's what he does he suppresses information and he's not transparent that's the problem in my opinion
3: <laughs> that's true.
2: I, uh, Kairos is. A, we're a charitable group, so by law we can't be partisan. And sometimes people will will say, you know, say to me, uh, how do you know how do you resist constantly criticizing this government? Well, first of all, we don't resist. We just don't do it on a party by party basis. And uh, I think the reason it's easy not to do it on a party by party basis is the Liberals were scarcely any different when when they were in power like that. So while I don't disagree with what you're saying at all about uh, suppressing information, it's it's got a long and uh, ignoble history in this country, as does the pattern of of, uh, governments taking citizens' groups, First Nations groups, to court, rather than hearing the truth, which then forces civil society to also go to court, right? So you wind up having to play their game all the time. So what I'm often struck by is is just how long this has been going on and how it's been a pattern in every single government and uh, why it is that, that people like Paul Martin, who have been speaking out very clearly, he spoke some, you know, within white standards, some pretty controversial things at the uh, Montreal national event, but people have also respectfully challenged him to say well where were you when you were prime minister on these issues when when are we going to start to see this when people are actually still in power rather than after they've retired
1: okay and um, this will be our last question and I know we're approaching 130 so I'll the speakers to respond briefly <laughs> uh,
3: I'm Charlie Luca uh, I had often wondered if um, the native in uh, the uh, First Nations children could have gone to schools with the rest of, with other children if the, uh, i mean that wouldn't be possible in earlier years, of course, but if that could have done more and more, if it would have been easier integrating what do you think
0: uh, very good question, thank you for asking that the fact that there was existing schools all over the reserves we have all the uh, towns of McGrath and, and we had Carson, and all well, things. You could not leave the reserve if you were a status Indian on there without a permit from the Indian agent. You had to seek their permission. And any individual in Lethbridge could ask to see that Indian's permit. And then you couldn't go to certain places without that permit. So, therefore, this is what Grandpa had told me that he got the permit to take my dad to go do some truck repairs. And so one of the store managers says, well, before I work on your truck, I need to see your permit. So Grandpa reluctantly shows him. He tears it up. Well, get the hell out of here, Indian. We don't want you here. Could you get groceries? Would you want to send your children away to the same people that way? So that was the capacity, and that's the reason why this is the impact. The Indian Act dictates that the children would not attend off-reserve. So that's the legislation that gave them to do the authority to do these acts. So therefore, they couldn't leave. And if they were to leave, what I told you about Harley and Grandpa being imprisoned would take place. So this horrible dynamics. So I believe that's it. So first off, thank you for attending. We've just touched on some very, you know, real issues uh, we'll be around here. We'll make ourselves available—phone, email, all that good stuff. Will be up there. In addition, I'd like to mention that a lot of my ancestors and family couldn't be here today because there was the passing, and one of our gr- our grandmothers, uh, her funeral was at eleven today. So they send their regrets. So thank you for all your support. So.
2: And I add my thank you as well. Hey, thanks, Julia, Mike.